Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and thank you for listening. Do look around the site. We have over 3,400 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.com. Dot 72 at gmail.com. Please also check out the new website that allows you to tune in to the new Hackberry Radio. Just go to hackberryhouseofchosun.com and take a look and a listen. I'm reading today from a book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall, the English Bible scholar and pastor who died in 1679. Now, he's giving the reasons, he's going to start giving the reasons for the exhortation found in Ephesians 6.13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The first reason has to do with the hour of battle in the evil day. The second reason has to do with what is required for the glorious outcome of the war which is certain victory if we are properly clad for the conflict. So the first reason today, the hour of battle. What is the evil day to which Paul refers? Bible scholars have given this brief phrase careful consideration. Some take the evil day to encompass the whole life of a Christian on earth. With this interpretation, the exhortation runs something like this. You must cover yourself with the whole armor of God in order to persevere to the end of your life, which is just one day of trouble and trial after another. Jacob confessed to this attitude as he looked back over his life, few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. To some it seems there is never a day when the sun shines so brightly that Rain does not come before nightfall. Every day has its proportion of evil. We do not need to borrow the sorrows of tomorrow to make up today's load. The scriptures speak of daily bread. They also speak of a daily cross, which we are told to take and not make. The reference here is not to those crosses we fashion for ourselves. God, in his providence, will always provide a cross of his choosing for us. And though he tells us explicitly to take it up, he never tells us to put it down. The span of our lives and the span of our trials measure the same distance. Much has been made of Job's lament during his time of testing, but listen to what he says about his former prosperity. He said, I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, and yet trouble came. Even when his bed was as soft as a man could wish, Job tossed and turned, unable to sleep under the weight of a heavy spirit. He tells us from his own experience that earth's finest rewards will not satisfy the longing in a man's soul. As Christians, even the best of times becomes a cross to bear because it detains us from our crown. Every day spent in this wicked world is one less day spent in the presence of Christ. The only consolation in this evil is that it is short. Our life is, in fact, only an evil day. A few steps and we'll be out of the storm. There is an ever-widening chasm between the saint and the sinner in this respect. 
They are like two travelers riding in the same country, but in opposite directions, both caught in a rainstorm. The saint, however, is riding away from the storm and will soon be out of the rain. When death comes, he will have eternal fair weather, but the wicked man rides into the eye of the storm. The farther he goes, the worse it gets. What he is facing on earth is but a sprinkle compared to the great tempest he will face when he dies. The flood of God's wrath will be in hell, both from above of his righteous fury and from beneath of the sinner's own accusing and tormenting conscience. Another explanation of the term evil day is that it does not encompass the whole span of our lives, but rather that time which is particularly and especially fraught with suffering. Though certainly our whole life is evil when compared with heaven's blissful state, still one part of our life, when compared with another, may be called good and the other evil. Earth is a middle place between heaven and hell. It partakes of both. We go uphill and downhill before we reach our journey's end. Inevitably, we find the deepest slough nearest our final destination, death, I mean, and into this slough all the other troubles of life pour, like streams winding down to some great river. Death being the comprehensive evil, I conceive that it is primarily what Paul meant by the evil day. Let's talk about First now, the nature and quality of evil and the evil day. To grasp Paul's meaning, we must first understand in what sense affliction is evil and in what sense it is not. Since God credits himself with devising the evil of affliction, it can be neither morally nor intrinsically evil. The Lord himself declared, Against this family do I devise an evil. Again, in Amos, we read that there was no evil in the city except that which was of God's doing. That's Amos 3.6. In affliction, if it were intrinsically evil, then it should never be the object of our desire, as it sometimes may be. Affliction may take the form of persecution, for example. In that case, when the choice is to disobey God or to suffer persecution— One must certainly choose the latter. When put to the test, we are to submit to the greatest affliction rather than succumb to the smallest sin. Moses chose persecution with the people of God rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. Another type of affliction is temptation, which, according to James, is cause for rejoicing. How could we count it all joy to to fall into something morally or intrinsically evil? If the term evil, when applied to the day of affliction, does not mean sin or moral wickedness, what does it signify? In what respect can the day of affliction for the saints be termed evil? Well, A, it is a day when joy deserts us. Affliction is evil or bad in the sense that it may rob us of our joy. Like bitter medicine, affliction has an unpleasant effect on the senses. Therefore Solomon, speaking of the evil days of sickness, declares them to be so distasteful that we shall say we have no pleasure in them. Natural joy is a flower that flourishes in the sun of prosperity and withers 
when that sun is hidden by a cloud of trials. Nevertheless, the saints can have their greatest portion of joy in affliction, for the source of their joy is outside themselves. God sends it, or else they would be as miserable as others are when when trouble strikes. For comfort to spring from affliction is no more natural than for grapes to grow on thorns or for manna to appear in the wilderness. But God chooses this season to make the omnipotency of his love the more conspicuous. When Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, he first had the wood and sacrifice drenched with water and the trench around the altar filled to the brim. Then he prayed and brought fire from heaven to lick it up. In like manner, God may allow a flood of afflictions to pour upon his children. He then kindles that inward joy in their bosoms to consume all their sorrows. The very waters of affliction add a further sweetness to their spiritual joy. Still, it is God who is good and affliction that is evil. B. It is a day when past sins are remembered. The day of affliction brings unwelcome reminders of what sinful evils have passed in our lives. Old sins which were buried many years ago in the grave of forgetfulness come back to haunt us. Their ghosts walk in our consciences. And as the darkness of night heightens our fear of the unseen, so the day when death approaches adds to the terror of our sins then remembered. Never did the patriarch's sin look so ghastly to them as when it uh, recoiled upon them in their distress. And see, the day of affliction is a day when present sin is revealed. Affliction troubles the waters of our souls. If any sediment of sin is at the bottom, it will rise to the surface. The agitation of affliction washes off the hypocrite's paint which may be the very reason for a time of testing. Some lose their faith when persecution comes. Others curse their king and their God, Isaiah 8.21. A false heart cannot think well of an afflicting God. Yet even when a person appears to be full of God's grace, affliction can reveal that corruption is stronger and grace weaker than they were thought to be. Our example is Peter, who stepped so fearlessly out of the boat and onto the water, but then began to sink. In an instant he saw there was more unbelief in his heart than he had supposed. Sharp afflictions are to the soul as a driving rain to a house. We do not notice the leaks in the roof until we hear the drips and watch the puddles form on the floor. When tribulation beats down upon your soul, it soon discloses the weak spots in your graces. This is the reason none are so humble and compassionate toward other aching souls as those who are most acquainted with afflictions. They have been buffeted so sorely themselves that they keep the sails of self-esteem low, more ready to pity than condemn fellow sufferers who are weak. D, it is the day Satan comes to tempt. That which Matthew called the time of tribulation in Matthew 13, Luke refers to the same time as temptation, Luke 8. Indeed, they both meet. 
God seldom afflicts us without Satan adding temptation to our wilderness. Christ's sufferings from man and his temptation from the devil come together. This is your hour, Christ said to the chief priests and elders, and the power of darkness. Esau, who hated his brother for the blessing, said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Times of affliction are the days of mourning. Satan waits for them to do us mischief. E, it is the day of trouble. All is well that ends well, the saying goes, though the day of affliction is troublesome, sincere saints always benefit from it. God's rod of correction yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. In the wicked, however, the result is evil. The day of affliction leaves them more impenitent, hardened in sin, and outrageous in their wicked practices. Every plague on Egypt added to the plague of hardness on Pharaoh's heart. Many are not purged but poisoned by their afflictions. Although the affliction may pass, the poison remains and breaks out in more hideous sins than before. Every affliction on a wicked person produces another, greater affliction, until the greatest comes at last. The wicked man finds himself in hell, where all his afflictions meet in one that is endless. Next, the certainty of an evil day. We can no more escape the hour of darkness that is coming upon us all than we can stop the sun from setting at its appointed hour. There is no man that has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Neither has he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Ecclesiastes 8.8 8. When called to active duty in war, a man may sometimes be excused because of his age or a physical weakness, or he may try to bribe an official or obtain someone else to take his place. But in this personal war with death, the rules are so strict that there is no escape. We must in our own person come into the field and look death in the face. Some live as though they think they will never die. Others are so foolish as to say they, they've made a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. When the plague passes through, they expect to be spared. And so for now, like debtors who have paid the bailiff, they walk around boldly and fear no arrest. But God tells them, Your covenant with death shall be disannulled. Your agreement with hell shall not stand. That's Isaiah twenty-eight, eighteen. Regarding the day of death, there is a divine law which came into force with Adam's first sin, that fatal knife to the throat of mankind. God, to prevent all escape, has sown the seeds of death in our very nature. We can as soon run from ourselves as from death. We need no woodsman to come and hew us down. There is in the tree a worm which grows out of its own substance that will destroy it. We have in us those infirmities of nature which will bring us down to the dust. Our death was bred when our life was first conceived. And as a woman cannot stop the hour of her travail, which is a natural consequence of conception, 
so neither can man hinder the bringing forth of death with which his life is impregnated. Every physical pain you endure is a groan from your dying nature, warning you that death is at hand. God owes a debt both to the first Adam and to the second. To the first he owes the wages of his sin, to the second the reward of his sufferings. The place for full payment of both is the other world. And so unless death comes to convey man there, the wicked, who are the posterity of the first Adam, will miss the full pay for their sins. The godly also, who are the seed of Christ, cannot receive the whole purchase of his blood until they leave this frame of dust. Before the world began, God promised the Son that his shed blood would purchase eternal life for all who trust in him. This is the reason why God has made the day of death so sure. In it, he discharges both bonds. Amen. Next time, the necessity of armor to withstand the evil day. The necessity of armor. Well, thank you for being with me again and uh, reminding you that this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.